Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. What are we doing this morning? Just a big long list of a bunch of weird Hebrew names. You probably haven't heard this taught at Christmas. Typically at Christmas time, you will have some sort of play or someone will tell the Christmas story, but this is the Parkway Church. And so we're going to give you a little bit more meat this morning as we work through this genealogy. Now, uh, let me explain where we're at and why we're doing this. Last week, Pastor Jeff taught through what is called in English the Proto-Evangelium, what is called in Greek the Proto-Euangelion. Protos means first, you means good, and Angelion is news or message. So it's the first pronouncement in the Bible of this good news, that though the serpent had deceived mankind and the world became broken, there was someone coming from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Today, we're going to get to see who that seed is. We get to see the lineage, if you will, of that seed who is coming to fix the world, who has already begun his restoration process and will continue that at his second coming. Now, uh, let me tell you why this is important. So I was working for a church one time, and I got an email from a guy, and his name is John Lamb, L-A-M-B, okay? I know John, I had hung out with John, I had seen John, John and I were friends, and so he sent me an email, and he said, hey, let's meet at this coffee shop, I've got some questions to ask you. So we met at this overly trendy coffee shop, I think you know what I mean, like most of them, where there's just a bunch of birds everywhere, somehow that makes it art, if there's birds, and they've got their organic Wi-Fi and their free-range coffee and all these kind of things, and so we meet at this coffee shop, and uh, I come in, and I'm waiting to meet with my buddy John. Why I'm waiting there, another guy who I don't know, comes up to me and comes right up to me and shakes my hand and says, hey, it's nice to meet you. And I'm like, hello, friendly person. It's nice to meet you too. I'm waiting for, to get coffee with somebody. And he looks at me kind of sad and he goes, oh, okay. And so I'm sitting down on the couch and he's sitting right there beside me, looking at me, and I'm just on my phone, okay? I don't know who this strange person is. I'm waiting to meet with John Lamb. And so I'm sitting there and 15 minutes goes by. And so I email my buddy and I say, hey, man, I'm at this coffee shop. Where are you? And he emails me back and says, we don't have a meeting today. And I said, uh-oh. So I turned to the guy sitting right there looking at me for 15 minutes, and I said, I'm sorry, what is your name? And he said, my name's John Lamb. And he was the a different guy with the exact same name, okay? So for just 15 minutes, he's been staring at me while I've been rudely on my phone. He knows we have a meeting. I apparently don't, and that's what happens. That's what you, if you ever wonder what pastors do during the week, we don't play golf. We look like idiots, okay? That's what we do, okay? Now, the reason I say that is because it's super important that when you're talking about somebody, you get the right person, okay? Super important. A similar thing happened uh, last week, actually, here at Parkway. We have a group of women that have a long text thread where they'll text each other prayer requests and these kind of things. And one of the women on that thread said, stop texting me. And the other women were like, oh, I'm sorry. You, you asked us to text you. And then she started cursing. You blankety-blank better stop blankety-texting me, okay? And it turns out it was not a woman here. The lady had gotten a new number, and it was some other stranger but everyone else thought this woman had lost her mind, okay, until they realized it wasn't her. It's important when you're talking about somebody that you get the right person. Now, there are a lot of places in Christianity where you can be off and still be a Christian. You can hold a differing view of the end times and still be a Christian. You can hold a differing view of communion or baptism or church government and still be a Christian. You can hold a differ, different view regarding the roles of men and women and still be a Christian. You can hold a, even a different view on certain elements of salvation and still be a Christian. But the one place you cannot be off on is who is the Messiah. You don't get to be off on Jesus. You can be off on a lot of other things, but you don't get to miss this. And so Matthew is going to go to extreme detail to make sure you see who that Savior is. So let me pray for us, and then we will get into verse 1. 
Almighty God, we thank you for this text. Uh, confess that it's a strange text. It's one of those texts where we just typically skim over it because it just seems like a bunch of weird names. And so I pray that uh, by the Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to see what you've put here, that this is your word, that you have put this here intentionally, that we are supposed to see these things. And so we love you and we thank you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look at the first part of verse 1a. I'm going to spend about 30 minutes on each of these names, and I'll, we'll be done by tomorrow Eve, Christmas Eve sermon. Okay, that's the idea. So some of these we'll spend more time on others. Let's start with verse 1a, the first part of verse 1. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let's take that first phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A few things. First of all, the word book there is a reference to the book of Matthew. The Bible is one storyline but it's not one book, it's actually a collection of 66 smaller books. A book in the first, to a first century audience is a scroll, and so Matthew is here prefacing his book. He's prefacing his gospel. The book here refers to the book of Matthew, okay? Next it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let me explain something that you need to know. This is really important. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, does not begin to exist at Christmas time, Okay? He has always existed. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Word, has always been. God has always been a Trinity, okay? The Father is not older than the Son. They're both infinity years old, okay? The Son has always existed. He is truly and fully God. He is not created. He is eternal. What we're celebrating at Christmas is not the beginning of the Son of God. What we're celebrating at Christmas is the incarnation. When the second person of the Trinity, the one who has always been God, now comes down and takes on a second nature. He keeps the divine nature that he has. He doesn't stop being God. He doesn't lay down any of his divine attributes, any of that. He remains God, and at the incarnation, he now takes on a second nature, and that he takes on humanity. The biblical view of Jesus is that he is one person. There's only one Jesus. But he has two distinct natures. He is fully God, and he is fully man. So what we're celebrating here at the incarnation of Christmas is not the beginning of the second person of the Trinity. He's always existed. What we're celebrating is that God would become man for our salvation. So what we're seeing here in this genealogy is we are seeing the genealogy of Jesus's humanity, okay? Now, also you need to know about this genealogy. This genealogy, a genealogy, by the way, we keep using that word. It's just a family tree. It's like a list of your forefathers. That's all a genealogy is. When genealogies are used in the Bible, they typically are not giving you an exhaustive list, okay? This is not everyone in Jesus' family tree. Certain people have been left out. There's even some people in here that we don't know much about them. They're not mentioned even in the Old Testament, so we don't know where Matthew gets those names. The purpose of a genealogy is not to list everyone in someone's family tree. It's to list the important people. Are you with me? So before there was the recording artist, Usher, there was Archbishop James Usher, a church leader in the 1600s, and what he tried to do is he opened the Old Testament and he tried to calculate how old the earth was. So he said, well, this guy was the father of this guy and he lived this many years, and this guy is the father of this guy and he lived this many years, and he came to the conclusion that the earth was created in 4004 BC, okay? Now, the reason you can't do that is because there are huge gaps in the genealogy. That's not how you use genealogies. How old is the earth? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. So be careful holding confident positions that the Bible doesn't actually assert. The, the purpose of a genealogy is not to list everyone. It's to list the important people. Okay? It's to list the important people. Look again at the text. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy in Greek is this. Genesis. Genesis. What does that sound like? 
Genesis. That's actually a Greek title of the first book of our Old Testament, Genesis. Why does Matthew use that word here? Because he sees the gospel as a new beginning for humanity. God created everything in Genesis. Everything was good. Mankind screwed it up. We rebelled against God. We gave our allegiance to the serpent. Everything became broken. And so here he wants to say there is a new beginning. God is reestablishing the kingdom that he had set up in Genesis. He's fixing it. He's putting the broken world back to rights in Christ. And so he uses this word, which can mean genealogy or beginning, intentionally to invoke that kind of imagery. And then lastly, look at the name here, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We say the English word Jesus, that comes from the Greek word Iesus, which comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, okay? Jesus' name, as they would have said it in Hebrew or Aramaic, is Yeshua. What does that mean? That name means Yahweh is salvation. That's what it means, that the Lord saves, that Yahweh saves. Mary is told that you will have a son and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that second part, Christ, that's not like his last name. Okay? He doesn't get mail addressed to him to like Mr. Christ or something like that. That is a title. Okay? The Greek word Christos, where we get the word Christ, is similar to the Hebrew word Messiah. Mashiach is what it is. They both mean the anointed one. Okay? Now that might seem strange. We don't anoint people typically today. But an anointing was where you would take someone in the Old Testament, typically who served in a public office, somebody like a priest or somebody like a king, and you would pour oil on their head, and it was kind of like a coronation. It was kind of like a baptism. It was kind of like saying, we recognize that God has put you in this position. May he bless you in your leadership. Okay? When you read the word Christ in the New Testament, you need to think the king. Jesus Christ means Jesus the king. Jesus the king of Israel. That's what you need to think when you see that name. Now let's look at the second half of the first half of the first verse. Okay? It says, the son of of David, okay? The son of David. A few things I want you to see here. I said a second ago that Jesus is truly God and truly man. If that's not true, you can't be saved. If he is not truly God, he cannot save you, for only God can save. And if he is not truly man, then he cannot represent you. He cannot die on your behalf. And if he's not truly human, he can't be of the line of David. He can't be the Messiah. Notice the promise in the Old Testament is not just that God will come and save, it's that one will come from the line of Abraham and from the line of David and from the line of Judah. Jesus' true humanity is essential for your salvation because if he's not really from David, he's not the Messiah. Okay? David is this Old Testament prototypical great king. Yeah, he's got his quirks, he's got his flaws, he kills people and steals their wife and these kind of things, but other than that, he's a pretty great king, okay? And so what you have in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 13, is you have God promising something to David. We're going to read it together. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, and wherever you went, uh, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, look at this next part, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God comes to David and says, I swear to you, I swear to me, all right? I swear to God, I swear to me, that I will never fail to keep a man on the throne of Israel after your lineage. That's the promise. Then look at Luke 132. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This genealogy, the main figure that it's going to mention other than Jesus, is going to be King David. Okay? The word king is mentioned in the book of Matthew more than any other New Testament book. The word David is mentioned in the book of Matthew more than any other gospel. That is going to be the central theme of this genealogy is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the promised one. So take out your little David counter and see how many times David is mentioned in this text. Here's the first one, okay? The first mention of David here. Let's look at verse 1b going into verse 2. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Let's look at verse 1b going into verse 2. It says, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Okay, let me tell you why this is important. Does everyone know who Abraham is? Abraham is like the ninja, Jedi master, SEAL Team 6, Yoda, Gandalf, LeBron James of Judaism, okay? He is the super Jew. He is the father of Judaism. You remember those old commercials of how I want to be like Mike, and he'd like strap on his fancy shoes and he'd dunk a basketball? Young Jewish boys and girls want to be like Father Abraham. He straps on his Air Abraham sandals and like dunks a dreidel, and all the Jews are like, yes, that's our guy, okay? Whatever make and model, camel he drives is the camel you want to drive. That's Father Abraham. And God promises that through his seed, he's going to bless all nations. That God's purpose in selecting Israel wasn't just to bless Israel, but through Israel, he would bless all nations. Let me show you another text. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and verse 7 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay? So the world becomes broken. Mankind has sinned against God. Everything is messed up. And God says, I'm going to select somebody. And through them, I'm going to eventually send a descendant who's going to fix the world, who's going to bring blessing to all nations. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the next thing Matthew wants you to see is that this person is not only from the line of David, he's also from the line of Abraham, that he is Jewish. He is from the God of, he is from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see those next two mentioned? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why are they both mentioned? Isaac is this shadow in this prefigurement of Christ. Okay, you remember Isaac from the Old Testament? Abraham has Isaac, okay? Isaac has a miraculous birth. Sarah's womb is, quote, as good as dead, and yet there's this miraculous birth. Isaac is also one who's brought up on the mountain where he's going to be killed, but instead, Abraham receives back his son as if he had been raised from the dead, and this ram is sacrificed instead. Isaac is seen as this promised child. Is Isaac the only son that Abraham has? No, he has another son. What's his name? Ishmael. 
But that's not where the promise is going to come from. The promise will not come out of Saudi Arabia. Salvation will not come through Islam. The final prophet will not be Muhammad. But rather, salvation will come from the Jews. Salvation will come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Who is Jacob? Jacob is the elect child. He's not Esau. He's later named Israel. This one who's coming will be of the line of Israel. That's the focus of mentioning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says this in John 4, 22. He says, You, speaking about non-Jews, worship what you do not know. We, meaning Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation will not come out of America with our democracy and our freedom. Salvation will not come out of uh, engineering or industry in China. Salvation will not come out of Russia. It will not come out of Great Britain. It will not come out of Africa. Salvation for the whole world will come out of Israel. It will come out of Jerusalem. That's the hope. That the God of Israel is actually the God of the whole world. He's actually the God of the whole world. So there's this promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look at the last part of verse 2. And Jacob, the father of who? Go, you can go ahead and say it. Billy! No, what, what is it? Judah, all right? And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Who is Judah? In the Old Testament, you had kind of a checks and balances. So we have that today in America, right? We've got three different branches of government. They're supposed to checks and balance each other. You kind of had that in Israel. You had one nation, but you had 12 tribes, and some of those tribes were checks and balances against others. The priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi, they were in charge of the temple and all the priest stuff. The tribe of Judah is the kingly tribe. The tribe of Judah is the kingly tribe. I named my uh, son Judah after this. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Look at this next part. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You ever heard Jesus called the Lion of Judah? This is where we get this from, that the one who's coming is not just randomly going to be a Jew. You see the narrowing. There's going to be the seed of the woman, so he's going to be a human. He's going to come from Abraham, so you see he's going to be Jewish, and he's going to come from a specific tribe within Judaism, the tribe where kings come from, the tribe of Judah. Now let's look at verses 3 through 6. You ready for a bunch of names? Here we go. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Neshon, and Neshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, a few things to mention here, okay? First of all, look in verse 3, it says, And Judah, the father of Perez. I've got a buddy, and he's a Peruvian. He's a Hispanic guy. And he went up to me, and he said, Zach, you know how I know Jesus is Hispanic? And I said, he's not. He's Jewish, but let's, let's go along with this. He said, because there's a guy in his genealogy named Perez, all right? I have nothing to say about Perez. I just thought that was funny. Okay. I want you to see a few things from this text. First of all, look down at verse 6. Here you get the second reference to David again. Just in these few short verses, he's mentioned again, and he is given a title. So far, everything has just been the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. And then when he mentions David, he gives him a title. Because he's, again, screaming at you that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. So you see that title again there with David. Where is uh, David from, by the way? Where is David's dad, Jesse, from? What city? 
Yes, he's from a town in Israel called in Hebrew Beit Lechem, the house of bread, Bethlehem. Will that be significant for the Christmas story later on? It will be. That this Messiah has to be born in the city of David. That this, this shoot has to come from the stump of Jesse. And so you see this idea of David and Jesse and Bethlehem and the king and all those kind of things wrapped up into this. Now, verses 3 through 6 are the most interesting part of this genealogy, not because of the men who are mentioned, but because of the women who are mentioned in this genealogy. Okay? I want you to show you these women. I want to show you these women. First of all, I want you to look at two women in particular. Look in verse 3. There is a lady named Tamar. Okay? Now look down in verse 5. There is a lady named Rahab. Let me tell you why this is significant. Both of these women are prostitutes. Okay? Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. Within the line of the Savior, you have incest. Within the line of the Savior, you have these women. Within the line of Jesus, you have hookers. Why does Matthew include that? Because that's who Jesus comes to save. God doesn't save the best and the brightest. God comes to save those who are broken. So within the line of the Savior, you have women of ill repute. And what happens is God takes these women and he redeems them. They become major figures in Israel's history because this text is meant to show how Jesus is fulfilling the role of Israel. You have never sinned too much. You have never been too dirty for God not only to redeem you and pull you out of the muck and the mire, but also then to use you in a powerful way. Now, not only that, I think this is interesting as well, that these would have been women with bad reputations that God used. So I think one of the things Matthew is doing in this text is he is defending the Virgin Mary. Mary is both a young woman and has not had sex. She's what I call a virgin virgin. And she didn't do anything wrong, but people would have thought that she did. People would have thought that she's some sort of scandalous woman. And so I think one of the things subtly that Matthew is doing is he's mentioning other women that would have had scandal and uh, kind of this uh, dangerous, interesting past, and he's showing how God redeems them and how he uses them, okay? But that's not all. Keep looking. There's two more women that are interesting here. Now I want you to look at two more women. In addition to Tamar and Rahab, in verse 5, you get a woman named, a woman named Ruth. And look at verse 6. There is a reference to the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba, Okay? the wife of Uriah. Now, let me tell you why this is interesting. All these women are most likely Gentiles. At the least two, at the most four of these women are Gentiles, okay? Tamar is a Canaanite or an Aramean. Rahab is a Canaanite. Bathsheba was married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite, so she is probably also foreign-born. And then you have this lady, Ruth, who is a Moabite. Do you know what a Moabite is? Moabites were seen as disgusting in Israel. Let, let me explain the story to you. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament? Shake your head even if you don't, so I feel like we're succeeding here. Okay. Uh, there is someone who escapes out of Sodom and Gomorrah. What is his name? Lot. Okay? Seems like a great guy. Later on, his two daughters seduce him, get him drunk, seduce him, and have sex with their father, and that produces the incestuous line of Moab. You didn't learn about that when you were six in Sunday school, did you? They didn't have a lot and his two daughters, you know, felt board cut out for you when you were a little kid. That's in the Bible. They were seen as so disgusting because of this incest that they were not allowed to be a part of Israel to the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. 
So if you had Moabite blood running through your veins, even to the 10th generation, you could not worship fully in Israel. And yet you have these Gentile women. You have a Moabite, and you have Canaanites, and you have the wife of someone who is a Hittite. Why? Because Jesus comes not only to save sinners, not only to save prostitutes, he comes to save Gentiles. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the whole world. If you want to be saved, there is one way to be saved, and that is through Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile. Within the line of this Jewish Savior from Abraham, there is also these Gentile pagan women. Do you see how profound that is? Oh, and by the way, in case you missed it, we've actually already mentioned another Gentile, Abraham. Before he's Abraham, the father of the Jews, he is a moon-worshipping pagan from a town called Ur that God pulls out of that and says, you're going to be my people. Okay? God is using that. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 20, 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You remember that song when you were a kid? Father Abraham has many sons. And many sons has Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. You know that song? How can I, as a non-Jew, say that Abraham is my father? Because the Bible says those who are truly Jewish are those of the faith of Israel, those who put their faith in the Jewish Messiah, okay, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, I need to ruin something about Christmas for you, if I may. The story of the three wise men, okay? Let me ruin it for you real quick. First of all, the Bible never says that there are three. A lot of times people think that there are three because they bring three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But two, per, two people could have brought one gift or ten people could have brought one gift. We don't really know. The Greek word magoi is plural, so we know that there are at least two of these wise men or magi, but we don't know how many there are. There could be four. There could be five. There could be six. There could be seven. There could be twelve. There could be... Th- I can just keep counting. Somewhere between two and infinity magi visited Jesus. Okay? We don't know how many. Also, they were not there on the night Jesus was born. Do you know why? Because they can't teleport. They are over in Babylon. They are over in Persia. They are hundreds to thousands of miles away with no jet engines. As soon as they see the star, they can't just get there. They're going to have to travel for a long time, okay, a really long time. When they show up, King Herod decides to kill all the boys that are two years old and under. Why two years old? Why not just say, kill all the boys born tonight? Well, because they probably come several years after Jesus is born, okay? Also, the title uh, wise men is not good. When we think of wise men, we think of like a university professor or just someone who's smart. These are pagan, Gentile, Zoroastrian, astrology-doing witch doctors. That's what that means when you see magi, okay? So they're not there on the night that Jesus was born. If I come to your house around Christmas time, and you have a nativity scene, and you have the magi right there, what I will do is I will take them and I will move them across the living room (laughs) because they're traveling. Now, you won't invite me over to your house anymore, but your house will be just a little more biblical, and for that, you're welcome. (laughs) For that, you're welcome. Why does Matthew include the story of the magi? For the same reason that he mentions these Gentile women. Who comes to worship the Jewish Savior? It's not the Jews that get it. The Pharisees don't get it. The Pharisees miss it. The scribes, the teachers of the law, they miss it. It is the pagan, witchcraft-practicing astrologers from the East, the Gentiles that come and, quote, worship him. Worship him. Matthew is trying to say that Jesus is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the whole world. Okay? Michael Wilkins, New Testament scholar, says the lineage is comprised of men, women, 
adulterers, prostitutes, heroes and Gentiles, and Jesus will be the Savior of all. Of all. There is no room for human pride within Matthew's genealogy. You ever seen, uh, you ever watched professional bowling? I don't watch professional bowling because I have a life, but the few times that I've seen it, those guys get really psyched up and they think that they're awesome. They're like beating their chest. Some of them have like one gold hoop earring like they're a pirate and they're just psyched. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're probably the best athlete on world, in the world wearing khakis right now, I guess. They just get really excited about something that doesn't matter. They're the best in the world at rolling a ball in a smoke-filled room where you rent other people's shoes and get athlete's foot. They're the best at it, okay? They're all named Earl or something like this. And what's so weird is to see it, they'll get a strike and they will freak out and I'm like, I guess that's good for bowling. When I think of the top 10 athletes of all time, I don't mention any bowlers. That's human pride to God. We think we're great. We think we're smart. We think we're powerful. And the way that God is going to save us is through Gentiles, through prostitutes, through a king born in a manger instead of in a castle, etc. It's meant to show how ridiculous human pride is. It's meant to show how great God is, that all the education of Oxford University is a coloring book to God. He will save and he will make his name great. Verses 7 through 11. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I want you to see a few things here in this text. First of all, look in verse 7. It says, and Solomon. His name in Hebrew, by the way, is Shlomo. Isn't that great? I feel like that's what you call somebody when you're racing and you just pass them. You're like, catch up, Shlomo, right? That's Solomon. That's what it is in Hebrew. Solomon is the one who builds the temple. That this king who's coming is going to be a temple builder. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. That he will build a temple, he will be the cornerstone. Those who follow him will be the bricks that build up his temple and that temple will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, I'm not going to mention everybody on this uh, list, but what I want to explain what's going on in verses 7 through 11 is simply this. This is a list of a bunch of different kings. This is a list of a bunch of different kings. Some of them are bad, like Rehoboam and Ahaz, and some of these kings are good, like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, okay? Here's what you see here. God is being faithful to his promises to provide a king for Israel despite the fact that some of those will be unfaithful. Despite the fact that some of these kings are awful, horrible, idol-worshiping, terrible people, God will be faithful. He will uphold his promises despite human failures. Psalm 89, 30-36 says this. If his children, this is talking about the descendants of David, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Look at this next part but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. What God is saying is for those that are in covenant with them, he will discipline them. If God does not discipline you, you are not his child. But he will not fail to be faithful. Though several of these kings will have to get a beating from God, God will be faithful to provide a Messiah. God cannot go back on his promises. He cannot unadopt you once he has accepted you. He will discipline you, 
but he is gracious and he will be faithful to his promises. Now look at verse 11. Notice the phrase, the deportation to Babylon. Let me explain why this is interesting. Israel would eventually split into north and south, almost like a, like a civil war kind of thing. You had a northern kingdom called Israel, which was made up of most of the tribes, and you had a southern kingdom called Judah, uh, and these were the two kind of uh, different nations, if you will, within Israel. Both of them sinned, both of them walked in unrighteousness, and so what God did is he exiled both of them. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah was exiled to Babylon in 587, 586, kind of right as the year changed over into Babylon in 587, 586 B.C. Now let me tell you why that would be shocking. God has just promised that David will always have a man on the throne, and now there's no throne. Israel and Judah both are exiled. If you're a Jew at this point, you're holding your breath. Has God failed? Has God been unfaithful? What is going on? And so then you turn to verse 12. God brings his people back, reestablishes the throne. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Okay? We don't know a lot about some of the names mentioned in this part of the genealogy, but there's one name in particular I really want you to see. Okay? Look at verse 13. There is a guy named Zerubbabel, okay? Zerubbabel, born in Babylon is what that means, seed of Babylon. This is going to be the Persian-born governor of Jerusalem. This is going to be the guy that leads Israel back into the promised land, okay? So the point that Matthew's trying to make in mentioning here is that Jesus does the same thing. Moses takes God's people, leads them out of captivity. Zerubbabel takes God's people, leads them out of captivity, Jesus takes God's people and leads them out of a worse, darker, deeper spiritual captivity, and that's why he's mentioned here. Zerubbabel is mainly mentioned in the book of uh, Ezra, but some Jews thought he was the Messiah. That's how big of a role he plays in Judaism, okay? In the book of Haggai, he is called God's servant. He is called God's signet ring, which means like God's signature. He can sign things on God's behalf, and he's also called a, quote, chosen one that there is one who is coming who will be the true Messiah within the line here of Zerubbabel, okay? Now look in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Do you see the switch here after it mentions Joseph? You see that? The rest of this genealogy has been father of, father of, father of, father of, father of, father of. It gets to Joseph and he says husband of. Why? Because Jesus has no human father. Matthew is being meticulous in making sure you understand what's going on. Up until this point, it's all been father of, and then when it gets to Joseph, it switches and says, husband of Mary, because he is not the physical progenitor of Jesus. Okay? He would have been seen as Jesus' father legally, but Jesus has no human father. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is divine. Okay? You also see this phrase right after that, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and then it says this, of whom Jesus was born. It doesn't just say Mary birthed Jesus. This in Greek is what's called a divine passive. It's a reference to the fact that, uh, that God is performing this miracle in uniting God and man in the person of Christ. That's the idea, that he is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what you need to see here in verse 16 is this, <clears throat> that for Jesus to be the Messiah, he has to legally be the Messiah. That works from Joseph. 
He has to be divine, fully God, eternal. You see that. He's always been that. He has to be truly and fully human. He receives his humanity from his mother Mary, who, by the way, would have been of Joseph's same tribe, and that's why they go back to the town of Bethlehem. So Jesus is physically human, he's physically Jewish, and he's also God at the same time, and he's also now legally within the line of David as well. All the little tumblers on the lock are lining up so you can see that Jesus is the Messiah. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 is interesting. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you've got your David counter, there's a few more mentions of uh, King David being mentioned in this passage. Let me tell you something fascinating that is going on with this text, okay? Before I have to do that, I have to explain numbers to you. I know that sounds deep, so let me, uh, let me back up and explain what I mean. <clears throat> when we count today, or we draw a number, we use what are called Arabic numerals, okay? There's a bunch of them. One, two, three, four. It's like the Magi. I can just keep counting, okay? I'm a really good counter. That's mainly why they hired me, because I'm an excellent counter, okay? We use what are called Arabic numerals. Most people throughout world history have not counted that way because those come out of the Arab world, hence the phrase Arabic numerals, okay? So you had to have other ways of counting things. You could use Roman numerals, but that's really confusing. If you've got a little two-year-old and you're trying to teach them to count, can you imagine using Roman numerals? All right, buddy, ready? I, 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 V, 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 I, V, I, I, V, I, 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 X, X. That's really hard, okay? So what they would do in the ancient world is they would use letters to stand for numbers, okay? It's called gematria. It's not weird. It's not Bible Cody. What I'm about to tell you is uh, something that a lot of people would have understood. You would use letters to stand for numbers, okay? So A, if we're doing it in English, A stands for one. B stands for two. C stands for three. So what does A, B, C equal? What is it? Six. You got it. Okay, good. I didn't hear any wrong answers. I was hoping someone would say 20 and I could call them out in front of everybody. Six, okay? And what you would eventually do is some of those letters would stand for multiples of 10. Some of those letters would stand for multiples of 100 and multiples of 1,000. And by using letters as numbers, you were able to write out a bunch of different numbers without having to create a whole separate system to do that. You with me so far? Okay. Let me show you what King David's name is in Hebrew. We've got a picture of the Hebrew letters we're going to put up on the screen. Okay? Dawi, there it is right there. It's three letters. How many sections does Matthew divide his genealogy up into? Three sections of 14. What does King David's name equal? Well, let's do it. The first is you read it right to left, and you don't write out the, uh, the vowels. That's something you say, but in Hebrew, you just write out the consonants. And so the first one is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. That's a Dalet. That's the first letter you see. That's number four, okay? Next one, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav is the next letter. That's six. And then it ends with another Dalet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. What is four plus six plus four? It's 14. King David's name has three letters, which is why Matthew has three different sections, and his number is 14, which is why Matthew goes out of his way, even excluding some people and adding some people, to make sure that the number 14 is going over and over and over again. He is screaming at you with a megaphone, Jesus is the son of David. David, 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 David. That's what he's doing. He even structures the text so that it comes out to show that it's David. This is something that both uh, was done in Hebrew. It was also done in Greek, okay, where they would use letters as numbers. There's another place in your New Testament that does this. Do you want to know where it is? It's in Revelation 13:18. It says this, this calls for wisdom. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, meaning it spells a man's name, and his number is 666. What does that spell? Caesar Nero. Okay? Now, if that blows your mind, we don't have time to get into Revelation today. We're just on the genealogy. You've got to wait a long time before we get to Revelation. I'm just trying to show you this was a common thing where you would use letters to stand for numbers, and so you could actually send messages. You could use people's names as a number. And so what Matthew is trying to do is he is trying to say, in case you missed it with my four or five other references to David, this one who's coming, this one who has come from our perspective, is the son of David. And by the way, if you don't believe me, you think everything else I just said is ridiculous, what's the 14th name on this list? It's David. It's David. Okay? Now, I cannot think of a better way to end this sermon than by reading what is called the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay? This was a text that we just went through that says explicitly who Jesus is. He's of the line of Abraham. He's of the line of David. He's of the line of Judah. He's of the line of Zerubbabel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It tells you very clearly who Jesus is. And so what I would love to do to end this sermon is I want to read what is called the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay? It is one of the best summaries of what the Bible says about Jesus ever written in church history. It was written in about 451, and it is so good that the three Orthodox groups within Christianity, Catholics, Protestants, and those who are Eastern Orthodox, all affirm this. The only people that don't hold this are cults, are heretics, okay? What this creed is going to do is it's going to show you what we talked about a little bit earlier, that Jesus is one person. He's not two persons. There's not two Jesuses. There's just one Jesus, but that he has two distinct natures. He is fully God and he is fully man. Now, before I read the creed to you, I need to clarify two phrases so you don't freak out, okay? First of all, when it says that Jesus is begotten, that does not mean created. That does not mean that at some point he came into being. He has always been the Son of God. He has always existed, okay? He is God. Begotten in theology has to do with this eternal relationship between him and the Father. He's eternally the Son. It doesn't mean that he's created or he came into being. So don't, don't take what we mean today by begetting, like when we beget children, and all of a sudden they didn't exist and now they do. That's not what it means in theology, okay? The other phrase you need to, to understand at, before we read this creed is where the Virgin Mary is called the God-bearer. Sometimes you'll have the Virgin Mary in certain Christian creeds called the God-bearer or called the Mother of God. Let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. That does not mean that Jesus gets his deity from Mary. She has no deity, Okay? She's just a human. It also doesn't mean that Mary, like, precedes the Son of God. Jesus actually created Mary. Okay? So by calling her the God-bearer or by calling her Mary, Mother of God, or something like this, that is not a statement about Mary. She is not divine. She should not be worshipped. She should not be venerated. She's a great gal. She's blessed, says the text, but she's not divine. Okay? Why is she called in this creed the God-bearer? Here's why. There was an early heretic named Nestorius. And what Nestorius taught wasn't that Jesus just had two natures. That's a biblical view. He taught that there were two Jesuses. He taught that uh, Jesus was two persons. And so what Nestorius said is that the baby in Mary's womb was only human. The early church said, no, 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 no. The baby in Mary's womb is God and man, not merely human. So when this text calls Mary the God-bearer, it's not a statement about the identity of Mary. It's a statement about the identity of Jesus. It's saying the baby in her womb is truly and fully God. That's what it's saying. Mary has no deity. She's just a gal, okay? So don't freak out when you read that. Don't go all Virgin of Guadalupe on me as we read that. That's not what that's about, okay? With that in mind, I want you just to hear 
these words. This is fantastic. As we're preparing our hearts for Christmas, we're thinking about the incarnation. We've just read the genealogy. Let me read these words over you. Don't memorize it. Don't take pictures. You can look it up later. Let me just read it to you. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, meaning he doesn't just have a human body. He doesn't just look like us like Clark Kent. He's actually human. He also has a human soul and a human mind while remaining divine. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, meaning he's eternal. But yet, as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. What we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas, to quote St. Athanasius, is this. While remaining what he was, he took on what he previously was not. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come forward to pass out the elements. Father, we come before you only because Christ has made a way and only because you've given us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We love you and praise you. We confess that when mankind sinned against you, you could have just simply damned us all then. You could have just condemned us all then. But the fact that you would take your eternal son who you love and have him incarnate himself and become a man while remaining God to live the life that we should have lived and to take the punishment on the cross that we deserve and to raise him from the dead showing he is the king. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. You didn't have to do any of it. And yet you did it all. And so we thank you for your mercy and for your love and your grace. We pray as we partake of communion that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you. It's in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen.